This podcast is supported by the Tan Chin Tuan Chinese Culture and Civilization Program. Hello, James Jack with you. This is Yale and U.S. College Artist in Residence podcast. Thank you for joining us in a series of conversations with artists residing in Singapore for one semester to focus on creative research and artistic process currently occurring in Southeast Asia. In this podcast, we sit down with the artists just before the end of their residency to reflect on their experiences. There is a wave that weaves through the practice of all the artists. It is a wet wave of archipelagic consciousness. That is why I'm thinking of this residency as an archipelagic AIR in Singapore. Here, AIR, as in Ayer, Bahasa Malayu, is a wetness that permeates our bodies along with the air we breathe. We hold art central in the culture of liberal arts to explore the impact creative practice has on the world today. Residency as portal, kinship, recentering stories, and nutmeg mania are some of the topics in this episode. I'm here to share the third episode in the Archipelagic AIR series. Artist-in-residence Beatrice Glow discusses her creative research praxis working with scents of nutmeg, tobacco, betel nut, and shares an aromatic gift just received from the Banda Islands. In the first episode, I shared the larger vision for this AIR established at Yale NUS Liberal Arts College in Southeast Asia, so we'll only briefly mention our aims this time. This residency is about engaging with socio-cultural worlds in Singapore today through artistic perspectives. Artists and residents not only reflect, but also critique, challenge, and re-envision the worlds we inhabit. Each artist engages in wet time that continues beyond their dwelling in Singapore to discover relationships between islands. The diverse experiences of artists while in residence continue blossoming into artworks, collaborative projects, and impactful research for many years to come. Beatrice Glow has been in residence with us since the start of 2021. Beatrice is an artist working with public history, new media, and just futures as integral parts of her practice. Her artworks are immersive, work with restorative methodologies to reconnect us with indigenous knowledge in allyship through what she calls AR, or aromatic realities. Her residency unfolded during a period of open exchange in which stories unfolded over dishes of candle nuts blue pea rice, and herbal tea with diverse community members. She engaged actively with cultural bearers, students, and collectors in diverse encounters here. Today, as we have just entered an upcoming month of increasingly heightened measures of social distancing with the new strain, this conversation is a precious moment of reflection. I am delighted to welcome our guest, Sid Perez, as moderator. Sid is a curator at National University of Singapore Museum, 
focused on developing exhibitions and programs around the museum's South and Southeast Asian collection. Since 2008, she develops opportunities for transcultural contact among artists, curators, and communities that organize and question regionalities. Sid co-founded Planting Rice in 2011 as an interdependent platform that makes sense of the cross-pollination of ideas, resources, and projects that happen between artistic individuals and communities. Sid works with artists who are interested in alleviating orthodox modes of representation, including a residency at Marin Headlands in 2019 and the talk Unsettled Assignments as part of the current project Afro-Southeast Asia, Pragmatics and Geopoetics of Art During a Cold War. Welcome, Sid and Beatrice. The air is yours. Thank you, James. Um, thank you for inviting me to dialogue with Beatrice Glow today. My name is Sid Barris, and I'm a curator here at the NUS Museum. Um, I oversee the South and Southeast Asia collection, and it has been a joy to be with Beatrice to walk through our Straits Chinese collection and all the different ways where we deal with artifact, material culture, and all of these um, somehow legacies that come through in a very porous manner through institutions, um, through our bodies, and also in exchange with others. So I guess, Beatrice, would you like to introduce yourself? So hello, everybody. My name is Beatrice Glow. I am an artist. I work across multiple media. I always think about first audience first. How can I tell a great story that will bring everyone into a more relational way of thinking and being and dreaming together? And through that, I've worked with multi-sensory possibilities from new media, such as virtual reality, to augmented reality, to also working with smell, activating our sense of smell, um, our memories, and those aspects that we can't all normally access on a daily basis. I also love writing, and um, I love to be a medium that can help people, uh, communities who normally don't have certain platforms, um, support their storytelling with a larger audience. Um, so I think of myself also as a bridge. And this is a long process that has emerged through many years of understanding myself as a daughter of diaspora, specifically um, a diaspora that I think traces its roots to the migrations along the Maritime Silk Road, as well as the southwest and southeastern coasts and mountains of the beautiful island we call Taiwan. And so that sort of lays some of the landscapes that we will be traversing today and waterways that we'll be traversing today in our dialogue. So thank you, Sid, so much for taking the time to come with me today and uh, do this deep dive. I really appreciate it. And honoring also our archipelagic sisterhood. Yeah, I met you on Zoom <laughs> just about two weeks before I flew out to Singapore. I also have 
in front of me um, different essential oils. One of them is, um, I guess, what we call either osmanthus here, or guihua, or also sweet olive. That's the one I'm actually wearing right now. Sit down if you want a little drop of it. It's stunning. And uh, I find that to be a flower that uh, I smell when I walk around town. So I brought it in to our space today, to the recording studio. And the other one is a gift I just received um, from the Banda Islands. It's uh, The Banda Islands um, is uh, the place where nutmegs were once originally from. And this is a really beautiful oil pressed just recently last year by Ponki, one of the last um, paracaneers of the island. So that's really amazing. And I have in front of me all sorts of publications from Biblio Asia um, that talk about uh, nutmeg, plantation century, opium taxes, um, <laughs> siri, and beetle nuts. And I also have a wonderful book here um, about Mazu, which is the goddess that is very important here in this region um, that is honored at the Tianhok Temple, Tianhou Gong. And um, it's about a goddess that protects travelers and voyagers on the ocean. And uh, she's quite beloved, and I really love that I picked up a copy of a story about her that's in kind of Hokkien sort of writing, um, like preferential writing, and also bilingual in English. So these are kind of the toys I have in front of me. And also a rock from Taiwan, from my grandmother's town. <laughs> so I don't know if that's a good way to kind of dive into material culture legacies and conversations. Yeah. Wonderful. I was, I guess I wanted at this point now to talk about still this whole process of research during a residency, mm -hmm. a residency that takes you across the seas, um, and also in a way map your route back. I want to return to to the idea of a portal, mm -hmm. and to the idea of opening up oneself to whatever is being offered. I know you've told me you've also expressed and also embodied the sense of gratitude um, at every. I guess at points where you also meet certain people that you know you wouldn't have researched beforehand but it is because of this um, openness mm -hmm. to be with this uh, form of being present where you are mm -hmm. right after you've placed a hiatus of your everyday life back in the states and then but these things these channels seem to have opened up all of these conversations um lead you to one place um, to another and I'd like to I wonder if you could share a bit more about that Beatrice like what was it like for you to also recognize this kind of research process that was not you know that was not so strictly adhering to um the form of scholarship that we attach to research mm -hmm. because you also give me this idea that there are different ways that we embody knowledges as well and it is also through these people the way um, uh, you you sense you touch you see things um, is, is so much more or ca can be as enriching as let's say reading a text mm -hmm. reading a dissertation 
So yeah. will you be able to talk about that <laughs> in your own terms? Like, I guess as a real reflection? Sure. Thank you, Sid, for that. Um, I guess there... One thing that has emerged a lot for me through my dialogues also with uh, Paranic and Culture Bears here is, is this idea of anti-coloniality versus decoloniality. And I think I spent a lot of my past years being anti-colonial but conflating that with decolonial. And I think there's one that's anti, which is more, I guess, pushing back, fighting back because there's a need to... Um, resist ways of being that are hierarchical and oppressive. But here I was also going deeper and talking with people about unpacking that and just embodying and understanding that knowledge production. I guess knowledge production doesn't need to seek validation only within academic spaces. Um, and what artists can do as a residency within a university context is to share how that works, right? Um, to think about how, what does horizontality really mean, and hence with the students, I said I'm a facilitator, and how I'm finding inspiration in every corner of, of the campus or when I'm out um, um, visiting the city, um, where am I reading the landscape and how do I do that? I know, so it's reading isn't just textual, it's also visual. It's also reading... Um, interpersonally how people approach a topic and inviting them to delve deeper into that you know those are all aspects of unlearning uh, knowledge sets that we come in with and uh, allowing oneself to take off our hats of expertise like sitting on the ground laying out all our questions together and searching and sorting together. And so there are a lot of workshops with post-its notes, <laughs> you know, where we're putting down on the paper um, quotes of the days, you know, with students or with alumni who came to visit me in the workshop and uh, searching for common grounds, you know. And a lot of times people come in maybe individually to an event, but leave together with new connections, um, encouraging us, us to think that none of us are... Um, there's no such thing as a genius artist, but there's something about ways in which we can tell stories together and that together we embody a more fuller picture and that we need each other, especially in a time in which um, we are shattering the myths of individualism and that we are understanding that our stories, especially diasporic stories and stories, migratory stories are fragmented. And the only way is to piece it together by being open. And the idea of portal is so beautiful. Um, I left a lot of room in my time when I came here to explore friendships, kinships. Actually, I think the word kinship is actually more important than friendship. To see everyone as your kin um, and that possible kins. And I'm finding many people I met here, we have um, shared lineages or perhaps our ancestors came from similar regions and, and went on boats and went to different islands um, through the past hundreds and hundreds of years, you know? And so how do we refine each other in, in this kind of future space? because I do think Singapore is kind of a city of the future, um, and how we compare notes about how we pronounce certain words and 
um, etymologically dissect, like for example, speaking with someone, they were like "gaypo," and I was like, "Oh, you mean gaypo," which means like chicken lady <laughs> or something, which means nosiness, and we were laughing about that. Or I like to stand on the bus stop and listen to people speak in Hokkien. Mm-hmm. And I find it very endearing because I kind of understand, but it's like an alternate version of Taiwanese holo, holoe. So it's very fun. And then to hear how people tell me, oh, in Taiwan, you speak the authentic form of holoe. And then I talked to my aunt, you know, in Taiwan, and she would say, oh, um, oh yeah, in Singapore, they speak the perfect, you know, Hokkien, you know. So it's very fun about how people imagine each other mm-hmm. across uh, different timelines, and despite perhaps having traced their lineages to one region. And then comparing notes and laughing about what is authentic and what is actually something that's messy and hybrid and beautiful because of its new interpretations and new traditions that have invented um, those have been really fun moments of exchange. And that also happens over food, because, I mean, Singapore is yes. about food. <laughs> Everyone likes to talk about, you know, best place where I should eat. I've got so many recommendations for places to eat. I don't think, I think I have to come back again. Hint, hint, everybody. <laughs> and um, each time we, we talk about food, people's light, eyes light up. And then it's really about coming together over family recipes. Um, coming together over associations and loves for places and cultures and uh, the labor of love in the kitchen, you know, the unseen labor. So that sort of has been the portal that opened up. And when you open that sort of space up to share, not um, it allows people to also show their vulnerable sides in ways that um, allow for deeper explorations that don't happen on Zoom. Um, and so I'm just happy I came because I almost didn't come. And we're happy to have you here. Yeah. And we're going to miss you. But I like uh, er- everything that you've just said previously. It reminds me of um, the many ways that you have looked at texts, right? When we're walking down Chongbaru. And you would tell me mm. a different um, formation um, in a mural, for instance. And we have gone through looking at the map work um, in in the exhibition glossaries at Baba House as well. Mm. And you were giving me a sense of perhaps through difference, uh, what do the characters mean in a kind of heuristic way? But what I'm picking up from you like in the end is the convergences. Right, the convergences of, of all of these tongues, um, whether in speech or in, in taste. Um, this all kind of comes together and that's the story that I'm hearing from you mm. and I think it's a very very beautiful one are you um, are you also would you like to speak more about um, I guess finding the diaspora here yeah in Singapore and a big part of the um, program was to kind of explore notions of Chineseness or chinitude you know, and I've done that in different ways uh, through my work in Peru as well, previously in Argentina and the Americas, looking at Asian migration to the Americas. But to come here, um, I found it so fascinating because here it's so diverse, it's so rich and layered that that one word Chinese is actually seems almost um, just this really huge umbrella term that embodies um, 
countless family stories and how um, they shaped this really, really rich place, right? And how they've also intersected with many other um, communities that have made their lives here in Singapore. You know, it's so diverse. And I really love, for example, walk, like you said, walking through Tionbaru, walking through hawker centers, um, or going through NUS Baba House, which is amazing. And then seeing the different ways in which who, when words are chosen, like simplified versus traditional um, Chinese characters, a lot of the words um, are based on drawings of natural life and deep observation that turn into language, you know? And so we were standing in front of um, different words, and we can see when some things came or have simplified versions, and those are more recent immigrants, and how that influenced it in hawker food stands that have really um, traditional writing and how these traditional writings reveal the people's stories and who's behind the owners, behind the stalls, and then the food that they make. You know, it makes for a very rich sort of textual reading of culture. Um, so I find that really fascinating. And what you said is so beautiful, also about the pictogram encounter and experience. I mean, I'm, I don't read um, Chinese. But I think, for example, like, uh, for example, we were looking at a word um, that was a simplified version, I think, of horse. Yes. Okay. I remember. <laughs> I remember. And um, a simplified version of horse, the horse is, doesn't have motion mm -hmm. because they just draw one line through and beat. Previously, it would show the, the horse running with its legs, the four dots means that the legs and it's running through a landscape and there's movement and it kind of conjures already uh, animation in my mind when I see Chinese words, which I think very beautiful, um, the written form. So it was fun to just think about also that within that story is a little um, portal, right, into diaspora in the shorthands that people mm -hmm. use or things people say and then looking for the roots of where those things come from. Wonderful. In a previous conversation, Beatrice, you gave me a very poignant statement about your stay here, which is I feel understood here. Oh. Was that also related to all of this, um, I guess, reflections of things that kind of emerge for you, like a strange... Um, we could call it hunting for some is a coincidental or um, almost fate, you know, to be yeah. able to see this in different circumstances of all places, of all times. These are the things that um, are familiar to you. Mm -hmm. I think the, gen the general research proposal mm -hmm. I came with was this idea of uh, aromatic realities this idea of AR, I think right now it's really trendy to talk about augmented reality, but I think um, besides the visual, we look at what's unseen, so aromatic realities is a way to enter the topic. Um, AR is also artist research. It's also um, archives reimagined, awakened ruins, and I thought those were all wonderful little um, phrases that kind of capture the ways I'm thinking about what artist research can be. Um, and I think of it through the different uh, aromatics of spice, smoke, and smog. Uh, each one touching upon the kind of an era that uh, bookends maybe early modern period, the spice trade, um, which is a spice, and then the smoke, which is kind of around um, everything from the tobacco trade 
to the smoke that we see of military um, bombings and then the smog that is a subsequent sort of uh, moment we're in of um, environmental degradation. So I'm thinking of aromatic realities through all these sort of quoting what scholar Shunshi says, um, the smell of risk. Sometimes I describe myself as a floating algae, right? You're sort of following the currents because uh, that is the way of life, um, but also because I feel that my belonging is often questioned growing up in the in North America. Um, always say people always asking where are you from where are you really really from you know i think a lot of people talk about that from the asian american community something that has been so amazing here is connecting with peranakan uh, culture bearers and l- the many of them have opened their doors for me and it really showed me across the timelines of diaspora you know, hundreds of years where people migrated along the Maritime Silk Road and made their families in different lands and intermarried with um, mostly the men, intermarried women, local women, you know. Um, that's also a big part of Taiwan, especially in my my mother's lineage, right? There's intermarriages with um, Native women from different groups um, from the Hakka side. And so when I meet um, Pyronic and culture bears. I love that there's been a very present um, sort of, I guess, influence from the matrilineal side of the story. You know that hasn't that they created a Pyronic and culture, and it's apparent in the food, the flavors, the aesthetics. Just going along this continued conversation that we've been having a little bit about uh, archipelagic thinking. Um, I think it just dovetails so with diasporic thinking, relational thinking, and empathetic thinking. And that really helped me look at um, the map of Austronesia a little bit more uh, in a different layered way I have done before. Before, it was always trying to just make sure I center the Pacific, the Great Ocean, in the middle of a map. But here, I'm looking for names of cities. You know, we talked about the Lima Club, where the word Lima means five, and it pops up in so many, like Malay language, and throughout the Philippines, throughout Taiwan, uh, throughout the islands, and also Mata for I, right? Um, another word that comes up a lot is Banga. I started to look at maps of our great ocean and that large archipelago and greatest the Maritime Silk Road in Southeast Asia. Um, I found, wow, I was surprised that there's Banga. Also, Banga means little canoe or little boat, and that's actually where my father is from in Taipei. Um, and I find that also to be, uh, there's Banga in the Philippines, there's Banga in Indonesia. Um, and so I just really feel that it continues to um, help this little floating algae <laughs> find a kind of little places I can moor my, uh, my little, I guess, flow and stop and pause and think and connect with other algae who are thinking similarly. But it really is a way of being, of being in the flow versus resisting or fighting, but understanding and listening that I think is what Just Futures really requires. It's um, reaching across the aisle and then also finding, embracing all of our messiness in between. So I just keep thinking about this banga, this little canoe, this word that um, part of me originates from. So when Yale and U.S. Uh, invitation came through, I I was surprised. I felt that the land heard me and that was bringing me back to this region to connect and support close by. 
Um, unfortunately, with the pandemic, couldn't travel, but I was in the same time zone or similar enough that um, with my Banda working group, which is a group of scholars and his cultural historians, heritage experts, and myself, I'm the artist of the group, um, we did a series of international roundtables uh, that cover topics from history to um, archaeology to heritage and commemoration. And finally, the panel that I got to share my practice in was the role of art and public engagement or public history. And 400 years ago, May 8th, 1621, mm-hmm. uh, was a very difficult day. It was a turning point in the Dutch uh, East India Company's conquest of the Banda Islands, where in many of the leaders, they say around 44 Orankaya, were um, executed in Fort Nassau on the Banda Naira, the main island of the archipelago. Um, and following that, subsequently, um, about 90%, which roughly is around almost 15,000 people, uh, were murdered. So it is only in the past year uh, that it has been recognized as a genocide officially in the Netherlands. But it is still a huge stigma, um, I think, in Dutch culture to bring up this topic. And so to be in a land founded through this history of nutmeg mania and to connect it to um, the previous chapter of the history and the neighbor next door um, to Singapore and Indonesia, there is an important lineage we have to remember that if we think archipelagically, our landmass to landmass, that all islands are connected underwater and cultures and are connected underwater is that the reason why Banda is so important, um, this history of the genocide of the Bandanese is, was actually um, the way in which after the 1621 massacre that the Dutch West India Company that was founded that same year modeled its genocidal policies um, after what they did, the Dutch East India Company did in Banda. And they carried out the similar policies in um, New York or New Amsterdam against the Lunapal people, um, of which I also have formed deep kinship with. So to connect their stories and to activate that across our waterways through Zoom has been very powerful. And to see people connect in ways that they otherwise wouldn't be able to if they had met in person um, through this amazing technology of crossing time zones and waters and rolling and re-rolling and unrolling together has been really, really, really uh, healing personally. And I've been invited in this process to tell my own um, motivations and stories about Taiwan's connection to this history um, and be heard has also been a very um, shocking part actually for me because I always felt that I'm as an ally, you're supposed to support, but you shouldn't center yourself. But I'm actually learning that by sharing my personal motivation and how I enter my family's history may or may not intersect um, with the chain of events that happened around the 1620s, um, also invites other people to come forth and share their stories. One of the things that you were committed to uh, when you came here, it's something that you were doing simultaneously across uh, you know, your residency, was this Banda Working Group. And it was through you that I've learned that it's 400 years uh, commemoration this year. Uh, Are you able to tell us more about it? Sure, sure. One of the reasons why 
I've been very fascinated by Singapore is because it's founded um, the early years of this the colony was um, funded through the potential of a lucrative nutmeg business. And there is a phase called nutmeg mania here um, where everyone went buck wild trying to plant nutmeg trees. Um, and that kind of links to a, a longtime interest of mine um, around why are nutmegs so important. Uh, so as a artist and someone who uh, traces the lineage of Austronesia, uh, living in New York, I was thinking a lot um, since 2013 about a treaty that was signed in the year 1667, wherein Manhattan, or what we know today as Manhattan, was traded for Suriname, for its sugar plantations, and um, an island called Rune in the Banda Island archipelago in eastern Indonesia because it was nutmeg-rich. It's the place where nutmegs once were only coming from. And for me, it's a really fascinating way to kind of ground a floating algae between Asia and the Americas and the Great Ocean. And that in-between story of how an, an island in the Western Hemisphere was traded for another island in um, in, the, in the archipelago of Banda, and how one became a financial capital now we know as New York, um, and another one has become more obscure but was once the crown jewel of a colonial empire. And what a story that decenters New Yorkers to think about. <laughs> um, centers of the world, right? Um, and what a way to bring forth uh, the stories at two extreme ends of the world, right? Because they're almost like antipodes, almost, right? Um, but, and all the stories in between. And so, as someone who traces their lineage to Austronesian Taiwan, um, I've also been very invested in the story because I also learned that following the subsequent um, genocide in Banda, around 17 Bandanese people were trafficked to Taiwan, enslaved to build other fortresses, and that the fortress they built, Fort Zealandia, is not far from where some of my ancestral, um, my ancestors' um, homelands traced to. So for me, and then also that the Bundanese, a lot of them um, also have Austronesian heritage. So for me, it was quite a, a shocking thing to be sitting in New York City and looking through archives, looking at um, stories of uh, Dutch New Amsterdam, and to be thinking about Asia and a really wild time around 400 years ago when people would be chasing each other and, and murdering each other for spices, something that is smells so beautiful yet carries such a heavy history. Um, so I started to, through many, many different ways, and I've done this in many talks, connect with people also in the Netherlands um, who are of um, Indonesian diaspora, especially Malukan, a diaspora from the region where Banda is located, and who want to tell these stories together, also Papuan, also um, Dutch allies of different descents, you know. So um, we're going to play a little music right now. <laughs> this is um, a welcome song um, by Kampong Ratu. Uh, from uh, the Banda Islands. It's a welcome song, and um, we're going to listen to it for a little bit um, to kind of bring us into this island spirit. Mm-hmm. 
So welcome back from the welcome song. <laughs> I'd like to ask Beatrice to tell us how her ongoing project and her kind of study and interests and curiosity in spices that basically mapped out all of this trade and exchanges historically and also speculatively um, opens up like a broader conversation about historical justice um, and all of this. For me, one of the most exciting things as an artist researcher is that I think in a way I'm invited into looking at collections, interpreting them not so much from an art historical perspective, but as inspiration for understanding legacies of material culture. And I'm particularly driven to look at objects that have relationship to human usage of uh, smell, uh, be it through incense, be it through uh, rites and rituals of worship, um, through substances such as snuff bottles, um, beetle nut uh, theory, sort of beautiful boxes and sets that are um, made to honor traditions of celebrating sitting around and ingesting different types of um, food products uh, from the land on which people come from and how they tell a story about people gathering. Um, and I kind of an umbrella term I've been using is, as you said, AR for augmented realities, aromatic realities, archives reimagined, um, and oh, awakened ruins. There are many, many terms that I think about AR, but I think it really applies to uh, this kind of way of looking and sensing that is uh, goes beyond reading things at the surface level. And I kind of came into thinking about aromatic realities for Singapore um, while I was thinking about the different ways of um, ways in which we can think about aromatic atmospheres uh, from spice such as a spice trade history that is very strong in this maritime Silk Road region that we're in to smoke which is both the smoke of tobacco Right, a really powerful plant that became a global currency that came originally from a sacred Native American practice that then became an incentive as a cash crop that motivated human trafficking from Africa to the Americas, the Atlantic space. Um, and I also looked at uh, smog, this idea of another aromatic reality um, that is actually not pleasant, but it's haunting. Um, haunting us in our environmental degradation and haunting us in clogging our view from looking at um, a just futures that is both socially and environmentally just. So I think about um, aromatic realities with all these sort of, um, I guess, buckets in my mind, but then they are, they permeate each other in different ways and finding the historical connections between them. Um, I, I guess a way to kind of think a little bit more grounding all this floating, strolling energy is to think about um, some of the work I've done uh, with historic houses, um, which is something I love doing. I actually grew up next to 
a the Winchester Mystery House, which is a house built from the repeating rifle company's money, um, also known as the um, they're most famous for the 1873 rifle called the gun that won the West. Um, and I grew up next to this kind of mansion that has a lot of stories about stairs that lead to nowhere. Um, uh, that was built through guided by seance sessions or this Queen Anne-style mansion sprawling area in um, San Jose, California. Um, and I understand, I talk about this because it kind of foreshadows how I work, thinking about haunting um, aesthetics that are luxurious yet carry a darker underpinning about a social or environmental reality and how we find them in our material culture. Coming here to Singapore, um, I kind of was afforded with this amazing time to really think about that, but also through a diasporic lens. And I started to uh, really get deep into this idea that I've been harboring, and it really came to life here in my studio space, what I call my playroom. Um, and the project was called uh, Smoke Trails. All the trails of history that find their ways to us through the smoke, right? Also the smoke trails of airplanes dashing through the sky and leaving um, ephemeral yet questioning substances in our air, the haunting stories that linger. And one thing I thought about was well, how can I tell all these stories, all this collections-based research, all the beautiful objects I see, yet questioning stories of provenance and material history and the labor behind the creation of beauty? So I started to create um, what I call a pseudo-collection of a family that made their money through everything smoke-related. Uh, tobacco, military innovations, to biosensors. Um, and it's set kind of in a the year 2068, 100 years after 1968. And they're about to relocate into a bunker due to ceaseless pandemics, as well as environmental catastrophes, and also social unrest. This is my kind of sci-fi uh, near future history. And so the Empire of Smoke, they have scrubbed themselves from the internet. So you can't really find too much about them. They're just known by financial institutions as EOS, Empire of Smoke, 10 to the 15th power, meaning that they're a quadrillionaire family. And um, I started to create objects that tell the story of um, the family through grounding in um, objects related to tobacco paraphernalia, um, to um, objects that uh, include biosensors, um, and all of them kind of tie back in a way inspired by um, the rich history of Singapore, really, uh, the rich decorative arts here, and how they really are this um, amalgamation or confluence of aesthetics that reveal a very cosmopolitan um, Southeast Asia where people and traders came uh, from all over parts of the world um, and developed really eclectic aesthetics. Um, so many gilded objects and carved uh, gems and ivories I got to see that made me really think about, um, inspire this, all these pseudo objects I made from pipes to snuff bottles um, to reimagining these archives. Um, and one object I had a lot of fun with is uh, called the Reflesia. Uh, odorometer security system. 
Uh, I'm sort of imagining that as his family relocates into a bunker, um, they have created a lot of um, sort of these biosensors in the form of the flower Rafflesia, um, which I guess is known also as corpse flower. Uh, because it smells disgusting, is what people tell me. It smells as rotten. Um, but I find it interesting because it's also named after Raffles, the first colonial governor of Singapore, I believe. And so it's sort of interesting that there's a flower that is rotting um, and it's named after a colonial governor. Um, so I just thought, what if this family is inspired by this legacy and created... Um, a series of high-tech uh, odor sensors that allow people to um, be detected through their unique scent identity in order to pass through highly rarefied spaces and um, bunkers. I feel like for the different times that we got to hang out, Beatrice, there's been a really rich exchange um, of the stories that you've told me as well the different opportunities to connect with different cultural bearers, practitioners, scholars, and even with your students. Perhaps we can unravel this portal, this <laughs> portal of a residency, by maybe telling us a little bit about your experience, maybe as a teacher. First off, and this is really coming straight from my heart, I've kept saying to people in all my little farewells the past few days, is that this has been truly one of the most joyful months of my life. Um, once I started to understand and get in the swing of this residency, there were so many aspects. I think I was A, entrusted with the amazing possibility to work with the brilliant students at Yale and US College, who each have taught me um, many aspects and enrich my understanding of what the term just futures means from the perspective of young people who are um, going to be our future leaders. Um, so my module was called Media Arts for Just Futures and I came in perhaps with a more binary way of thinking. Um, I was thinking a lot about what does it mean to activate art, to tell important stories that can shift us to have more deeper understandings of the interrelational um, issues at play to build an environmentally and socially and racially just futures. And I think one of the students really said to me was, um, we don't need just futures, we need just presence, you know. And that was actually one of the dialogues we had in the last class. And so this kind of just shows you how the students often were not afraid to push back at my way of thinking and enrich and build upon and they were guiding i came into class i didn't say i was a teacher i said i'm a facilitator and we did many things from field trips to lear learn about site-specific histories of singapore um, together because i am new as well to this wonderful island um, i also shared a lot of works by um, contemporary artists, and curators, and um, community art projects that I think uh, demonstrate these ideas of people using whatever tools they have whether and to, in order to tell great stories. Um, and then we did a lot of research as well. We brought the students to NUS Museum, and they each had to fall, get into small groups and pick out objects from the museum. 
and do collections research and ask questions and interact with registrars. And so it was really about thinking about thresholds and um, undoing those ideas around being able to ask questions um, and look at the institutional histories from within. So that was one aspect of the class. And then the second half, they all had to um, develop their own proposals. And I said, there's no final project, right? I think oftentimes we think that schools tell you that within one semester, you should have a final project. But I said, actually, your final project is a proposal for a long-term project. But they had to make a really powerful proposal. And they surprised me so much. We had students who did lecture performances around hostile architecture. Um, and they made 3D models that, um, and videos and mock-up spaces um, that told these stories about how spaces are sometimes hostile to people and how can we think about ways that are more um, disability justice friendly to students who talked about surveillance capitalism through augmented reality technology with very meta animations that were really stunning for the end of semester show. So that just gives you a little taste of what our class had been about. Um, and I told the students that we were going on residency together, um, where we were entering research creation together. I think I want to go back to this idea of a sensorium, of things or creative processes that elude the visuality, right? Like it's not just image. If you're thinking about aroma and how it offers to us or invites us to a history, perhaps it's, that would take us deeper and further than the public history that's constituted now. Um, just to imagine that a time then becomes something to really reconsider as a different encounter, right? As a different encounter. Because, you know, all of this sounds so much more interesting. Like outside, if we, if we begin to look further, like what you mentioned earlier, Beatrice, that um, the further you go, you realize that trade was always happening, that this whole phenomenon of globalization is uh, a bit of a cop-out because it's probably um, happening for centuries, um, longer than colonialism or longer than the Western pathways to our region, mm -hmm. to this region at the moment. And I think aro aromatic encounters um, the ability to engage um, in a different kind of bodily, somatic knowledge sense of these different spices, of these different, um, you know, products and gifts of nature allows us to kind of traverse beyond things that we could see or rationalize, mm -hmm. yeah, or rationalize with our sight at least. Yeah, I think the power of scent is that it brings us back to our most, I guess, primordial state um, as children. We know our mothers through scent, her scent, before we can see her, you know. And so our sense of smell then became secondary as we live in a visual culture where our visual cortex just keeps on developing and we actually often lack language to describe what we smell. But somehow the smell can just transport you immediately to another place. The thing that I've been working on here that uh, I think made so much sense to work on while I'm in Southeast Asia is um, the idea of golden silk smoke. So golden silk smoke is a word um, in Chinese, that means jing yin, so I kind of translated that to golden silk smoke. And it's a reference for tobacco, 
Now, it's a smoke that rises from a sacred plant from the Americas um, that was very, very highly addictive, um, that it, it took the world by storm, you know? And I was thinking about looking at collections of objects that were inspired by these practices of inhalation um, and scent that kind of connect us, the sort of molecular intimacy that binds us together. Um, but also through intimacies of trade networks. Um, so when I was working on snuff bottles, I was really isn't just about recreating, you know, beautiful objects I see in collections and cabinets of, you know, um, rich people um, or playthings, but also it's about talking about a whole genre of Asian decorative arts that was inspired by uh, art about a plant from the Americas, you know, so it's another way of grounding. So I just hope there's a way we can weave that sort of way of looking that it's not always east or west, you know, but breaking that sort of binary thinking, but thinking about the ways people mutually influence and the authorship is often blurred and um, artisans and artists and um, thinkers, creative people were always influencing each other across the oceans. Um, and I love textiles for that same reason, um, especially the mantones de manilas, you know, these silk shawls that tell the story of um, what we today conceive as a traditional uh, dance, a traditional like uh, shawl that is Spanish actually has origins in Spanish ladies loving uh, silks from Asia and embroideries and then actually um, working with artisans across the oceans to develop these even longer forms. And they came from China to Manila, and then Manila, they crossed through the Americas and they found their ways to Sevilla. I think maybe as a point to what Beatrice just mentioned about being able to play across the waters and for some form of creative encounters to, to come through. I also think about it historically, how do we deal with time and how this all connect, but not in um, in a synchronous way, right? It's almost uh, diachronic. Of course, there are moments where you mention like the 17th century spice wars. We talk about the turn of the century, um, the industrial revolution coming through with all of these different um, forms of trails, smog, smoke, and all that. You know, what constitutes, was there a trade between this across time? Um, within the region. And this is me thinking through how um, in the later 1800s, the nutmeg plantations along Neil Road used to be Salat or Silat Road. So Neil Road right now is where Baba House is situated. And that whole space used to be a nutmeg plantation. So this is near the turn of the century, the 20th century, um, how was that kind of related to the re region? You know, how was it moving along? Who was benefiting it? What was the trade for? It makes me think about that when you told the story of Banda, of it being the space uh, where nutmeg originated from at some point, 1600s, right? Or, or earlier. And then it makes me think about tobacco plantations too because at the turn of the century, at the other turn of the century, 20th um, century, so 
early 1900s, you have um, the big magnates like tobacco magnates in the region were Chinese Indonesians. So I also wonder this diasporic line, what does it uh, what it is what does it bring through in different places but in different times perhaps it's not something related by a certain period but there were roots of encounters that are happening um, before and after that that perhaps you know it's a whole yeah. kind of weave isn't it like mm -hmm. it, it it's not traceable in a singular way so yeah. that's how I think about it when you tell me stories of nutmeg, siri, cloves, and tobacco. Yeah. That's what I think about in the region. Uh, the whole crisscrossing, not just across archipelagic spaces, mm -hmm. but also time. Yeah, I, I love that. A big part of the question the past few months for me is, at what point did tobacco and cloves and beetle nuts, these plants, meet? Um, and I mean that in a very plant-centric way, as though they are um, that they are alive and they had a life of their own, and they guided humans to um, bring them together. Um, because of the clove cigarettes that um, I'm learning about here, I also, when I was doing research in Peru um, over 12, 12, 13 years ago at this point, I also found clove cigarettes in the middle of the Amazons. You know, and I think that has kind of opened myself, my senses up to ask, humans have always, like, when did they meet? And at what point the traders uh, exchanged these wonderful plants and created new practices that are not, um, that are now seen as common, but at a certain point were innovative. And that it shows, it shows a way of human mobility. Because these aren't just, it's not just taking two plants and mixing them together. It's about, social lubricants it's about people sharing and finding shared tastes um, um, and also then creating practices and then creating decorative art forms that adorn the practices the, the siri uh, kits the plates um, the pockets and pouches that people wore um, the tobacco forms um, and it speaks to how a lot of these families like the chinese indonesians and how they traveled you know and also how clothes previously um, were also traded, I think tracing back between Maluku to um, China in the 9th century that there has been an active trade network or that here we see the Tan Shipwreck which also at the uh, which is an amazing exhibition of a shipwreck in the 9th century where there are tons of tons of trade goods that were unearthed in around the I think 1980s or 90s um, between Indonesia and Singapore that revealed this very sophisticated network of porcelains and um, I didn't imagine the silks that were there but maybe dissolved and weathered away in the ocean you know and it speaks to a time and a counter history um, of humans always being in dialogue and influencing each other um, that defies some of the narratives that we are told that uh, globalization began with Columbus which at least I learned about that kind of uh, narrative, a Eurocentric narrative growing up in the States. And here, everything I see everywhere I go, it talks about people always traversing the ocean, always exchanging their goods, and that the plants traveled and told these stories, you know, and now we walk around and we can smell that puff in the air, and it's a memory 
of ways in which the communities have always shared their practices. And I think it's something that is hard to archive, but precisely for that reason, there's artistic language and creative expression to capture that. Absolutely. So thank you, Beatrice, for a beautiful journey through the census and listening to all your stories. And thank you for spending time with us here in Singapore. So we're looking forward to having you back. And thank you, everyone, for listening. Thank you very much, Sid and Beatrice, for sharing your stories with us today. We learned about shared lineages, biosensors, the role of the arts in creating public awareness, and weaving fabrics together. We heard about golden silk smoke, snuff bottles, as well as land stewardship as part of decoloniality. As we navigate through another wave of clusters here on this island of Singapore right now, our interconnections with other islands can be felt immediately. May this residency as portal continue to open alternative ways of linking us with our allies in archipelagos of care. Thank you for joining us on the Yale NUS AIR program podcast. This series of conversations with artists residing in Singapore for one semester focuses on artistic process and research currently occurring in Southeast Asia. The podcast reflects upon community dialogues, scholarly conversations, and radical questions that arise during each artist's residency. Artists embrace uncertainty and channel it into creative works. Artists reimagine the world as we have conceived of it thus far towards a more informed, colorful, and empathetic future. The aims of nurturing artistic process, stimulating community, criticality, dialogue, and creativity are center stage. This AIR stimulates students, faculty, staff, and community members to engage with artists as living, breathing members of the woven tapestry of this place we inhabit. Art can be seen increasingly in the present tense, thanks to this AIR program. The arts in liberal arts is truly alive through long engagements with international and local artists committed to alternative visions. Artists share their rigorous curiosity while actively working indoors and outdoors, in public and in private, in common spaces and online. The AIR program was unfortunately terminated recently. However, we will continue with the vision of this archipelagic podcast by placing student voices central to the shape of upcoming episode number four. Stay tuned for more dialogue where insights are found through artistic thinking. This is AIR director James Jack saying goodbye until next time. This podcast is supported by the Tan Chin Tuan Chinese Culture and Civilization Program. You have been listening to the Yo Anuas College Artist in Residence podcast. I'm Alexis Chen, selection committee member, student, and designer.